You have a map in front of you on our screens, and you're able to see the large part of Paul's third preaching trip, and we have come to Acts chapter 20 in the book of Acts, where we take up with Paul at Ephesus, who had planned to leave Ephesus to go to Macedonia first, then to Achaia, and now he's able to do so. He was held up there in Ephesus, though he had sent Timotheus and Erastus in verse 22 ahead of him into Macedonia. So we come to Acts chapter 20, and I read to you the first six verses. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. And there abode there three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And so Acts 20, 1 through 6. Looking at the map, Paul is in Ephesus, and he purposes to go to Macedonia, and he does. And he goes over those parts, it tells us in verse 2. We're not told when Paul went to Illyricum. He just tells us that he did go unto Illyricum in the Bible. We don't know exactly when he did it, but this is one of those times where he very well may have done it, because if you go west in Macedonia, you're going to end up at the border of Illyricum. And he said in verse, Luke tells us in verse 2, when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece, which is coming down into Achaia. Sometimes when you could use the word Greece to describe the part of Greece that had Athens, because Macedonia was very well known for the Macedonians that had lived there. But looking at the map, you can see the red line of Paul going up from Ephesus through Troas over to Philippi, down to Corinth, and then back up. Now, when he was in Corinth, we're told, he had, when he had come into Greece, verse 3, and he abode there three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. He was going to make a sailing trip from Greece like he had in trip two, but the Jews must have been waiting for him at the ports. So instead, he goes back north hundreds of miles. David Castleberry and I were talking at break time about how long it takes to walk that many miles. Even if you're doing five miles an hour, there's a lot of hours involved in travel. And five miles an hour is a very good pace. The man was fit. The man was zealous and tireless to, sit, to carry the gospel around the known world without cars, motorcycles, mopeds, internet, cell phones, telegrams, or any other advantage that we have. He was tireless, and we benefit from it by the gospel being carried into Europe again and Paul encouraging those churches. 
And it tells us that there accompanied him into Asia a number of parties. They went to Troas directly because the Jews weren't looking for all these people. The Jews wanted Paul. They wanted the Apostle Paul because he was the chief speaker for sure and he was the impetus behind the gospel going to the Gentiles. And so while they were able to cut across the Aegean Sea, the Apostle Paul goes all the way back up over and they all meet together in Troas as we're told there in that fifth verse. Now we come to verse 7. And I'm going to read verses 7 through 12. You know, every, every name that was given to you in verse 4 should not confuse you at all except the person's names because some of them you don't know from other places in the Bible. But Sopater of Berea. Well, you know where Berea is. It's that town near Thessalonica where the citizens were more noble than they in Thessalonica. Right. And where envious Jews had come from Thessalonica and chased Paul out of Berea all the way down to Athens on his second trip. But as you look at a verse like 4 of Acts chapter 20 that has all those names in it, you know where Berea is, you know where the Thessalonians were, you know where Derby was, and Asia. And so it's all, these are all helpful, and it should be coming together in some measure that when you read through the book of Acts and when you read the epistles... Because in the epistles, some of these places and some of these persons will also be mentioned. It should be coming together a little bit for you. And hopefully in the back of your Bible are other maps that you can appeal to from time to time just to remind you of the layout of Paul's territory. But chapter 20 and verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, we're in Troas of Asia. Upon the first day of the week... When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. Amen. When he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread, and eaten, and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. And they brought the young man alive, and were not a little comforted. Not a little comforted. That's some of the understatements of the scriptures. They were very comforted to have the young man back who had fallen asleep and fell from the third story and was taken up dead. But uh, Paul found life in him, though he was taken up dead. You should be able to figure out there's another miracle there because everywhere Paul goes, there are miracles to confirm his person, his office, and his preaching. Right. When we come to Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, one of the first things we want to do is look at that first clause. And upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together. So on what day of the week did disciples assemble in New Testament churches? The first day of the week. Amen. Sunday, not the seventh day of the week. What day of the week was he going to depart on? Monday. And how long had they been there? Seven days. So he arrived on a Monday, left on a Monday. That means he was there on a Saturday. Very important for Seventh-day Adventists. 
He was there on Saturday, but he didn't assemble on Saturday because he wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist. He was a first-day Baptist. And so we have Acts 20, and this is one of the places you want to remember in your Bible. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 shows the practice of the New Testament churches meeting on the first day of the week. And though Paul was there on the last day of the week, they didn't call him, and they didn't assemble, and he didn't join with them. And a whole lot could be said about that ism called Seventh-day Adventism, but they're wrong. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul told the Corinthians that along with the churches of Galatia, he had told them that when they come together on the first day of the week is when they were to take their collection and put their monies together for the poor saints in Judea. There's Bible evidence for our position. And that document is called Christian or Sabbatarian. You cannot be both because you cannot be both. You are denying Jesus Christ, the effect of his resurrection and his apostles by being seventh day and saying the Old Testament is more important to me than the new. Moses at Sinai is more important than Jesus on Mount Zion in heaven. And the difference is huge. That is why the Seventh-day Adventists also are vegetarians, because once you go back and dip into the Old Testament, where are you going to draw the line of what applies and what doesn't? They ought to be killing lambs. You know, tying two front legs to one car bumper and two rear legs to another car bumper and pulling the thing apart. Why not? If you're going to be a vegetarian, if you're going to be a vegetarian and just pick, and, and pick, then we might as well think of some ridiculous way to kill a lamb. They're not consistent in the Word of God. Right. We want to be consistent. We're New Testament Christians. When they write me, I always ask them, whenever you're ready to be a New Testament Christian, I would be happy to baptize you and teach you the way of Christ more perfectly. Because here, here's one of the examples that the seventh day has been put aside and replaced with the first day. Right. We're in chapter 20, but just a few years earlier, we had the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And what was the council of Jerusalem for? How much of Moses' law applies to Gentiles? Was there anything said about the Sabbath? No. Nothing whatsoever. No idols? Strangling meat, blood, or fornication. Those are the four restrictions they put on Gentiles. And so we appreciate Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 telling us when the disciples came together, that was the day of their assembly when they came together. Churches assemble. We are not believers floating around. We're not non-resident members. We're resident members of a church, and we assemble with that church so that we follow the apostolic order. And it's the custom of the New Testament churches to emphasize preaching. And so there's some preaching emphasized here. It tells us that Paul continued his speech until midnight. Now, whatever time they assembled on this first day of the week, Paul just kept right on preaching until midnight. That's a long time. And then he was interrupted by a man falling down and dying from the third floor. But he raised him back to life so that it wouldn't be a long interruption and kept on preaching till break of day is what this passage tells us, because preaching is public teaching, and it's declaring God's word, and these people were hearing it for the first time, and they didn't have a New Testament yet. It was important for Paul to convey as much as he possibly could to them. We have it written down in a New Testament of 27 books. 
for which you should be thankful. Amen. We have it in writing. We know exactly what the Lord wants us to do. And for example, that issue of the Sabbath, we have Colossians chapter 2 telling us that we should never be a judge of any holy day, that the Sabbath days were nailed to the cross. The Bible tells us things like that. And we are thankful for each one of them. We're thankful for Galatians and about chapter 4 that says that we don't care about days anymore, meaning Jewish days. We don't care about them. So preaching was done extensively when Paul would get into a town because that was his gift. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had an understanding of New Testament things like no one else, and he could preach forever, which till morning is forever, if you fell asleep at midnight. And you know, there are Christians that fall asleep sometimes during preaching, so you can find a little tiny bit of comfort. But Eutychus died for it. Just keep that in mind as you try to derive comfort from it. We come to verse 13. And verse 13 to verse 38 is primarily Paul speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. He's going to call them to meet him at Miletus. And if you're looking at the map, they're up at Troas right now where they, he was there for seven days. Eutychus fell out of the window. He preached till the break of day. And then we read here at verse 13, And we went before to ship and sailed unto Assus. There intending to take in Paul, for so had he appointed, minding himself to go afoot. So I'm going to highlight right here that we're in Troas. And the crew that was with Paul took ship and came around to Assos, but Paul wanted to go by foot. And this is where the first person pronouns, plural, remind us of which group Luke was in. Did Luke go with Paul or did Luke go with the others that wanted to be in the ship? Right there in verse 13. And we went before to ship. So Luke took ship and sailed unto Assos, there intending to take in Paul, for so had he appointed minding himself to go afoot. So he wanted to walk. Maybe he wanted to be alone. Maybe he wanted to have some prayer time. But he walked, and the others came by ship. Verse 14. And when he met with us at Assos, we took him in and came to Mytilene. And we sailed thence and came the next day over against Chios. And the next day we arrived at Samos and tarried at Tregilium. And the next day we came to Miletus. So the apostle is making day trips down through here, Mytilene, Chios, Samos, and he gets to Miletus. Now that's about 40 miles or so from Ephesus. And here at Miletus, we are told this. Verse 16, For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus, because he would not spend the time in Asia. For he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. He determined to sail by Ephesus. He skipped Ephesus. He came on down to Miletus and called for the elders of the church to come to him, lest he would go to Ephesus, get caught up in the excitement of preaching there, and be there a few weeks and be late for Jerusalem. So he says, I'm going to limit this. I'm not going to get in with that crowd that loves... Listen, the, the Ephesian church loved Paul. Right. You should have already seen that, about how he embraced the disciples when he left them. 
And there is going to be one tender moment on the beach right here when Paul leaves these elders. They had a very close relationship. This is unlike the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth did not like Paul. Paul had to defend himself to them, defend himself to them over and over, but he didn't have to do that with Ephesus. These three years that he had spent in Ephesus were very productive. All in Asia had heard about the Lord Jesus Christ while he was at Ephesus. But I hope you can, Paul's got a clock ticking in him. I have got to get to Syria to get to Jerusalem in time for a feast. So I'm, I'm going to leave Ephesus, and I'll stop at Miletus and have the elders come and meet with me separately. And so verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And here we have precious words of the apostle talking to preachers that he was going to leave in Ephesus for the church that was there. You know that he wrote an epistle to them later, but you also know that John wrote Revelation chapter 2 where Jesus Christ had to correct this church that they had lost their first love, that they had many good things going for them, but they had lost their first love. And Paul's going to explain some of that. See, we had back there in chapter 18 and verse 23 one verse one verse that covered hundreds of miles, many churches, nothing is said. Here, we have one short meeting with elders at Miletus, and we get all the details, and we trust God the Holy Spirit for what he gives us. Right. Amen. I'm going to read verses 18 through 27, where Paul summarized his ministry to these elders as to what kind of a minister he had been, beginning at verse 18. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. This is Paul exhorting the elders of the church of Ephesus. These are touching words. He first of all described what kind of a minister he had been from the very first day that he came into Asia and came to Ephesus and how he served the Lord there in verse 19 with humility, tears, and temptations. How he didn't keep anything back. He preached the whole counsel of God to them. He was not partial in his ministry. 
He was not out of balance in his ministry. He gave them everything that they needed, both publicly and from house to house, and pressed them toward repentance to God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And he admits in verse 22 that troubles are awaiting me. I'm expecting them. They're in store for me. When he said, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. I get in trouble in every city. The Spirit tells me this is the way it's going to be for me, and I know that it's going to happen to me in Jerusalem. I just don't know how it's going to happen. Jesus had told Paul this when he ordained him. Jesus had told Paul, you caused a lot of suffering and persecution in the church. You're going to endure a lot of it yourself for my sake. And Paul didn't mind that at all. If you go read places like Philippians chapter 3 and 1 Thessalonians, he will mention the fact that he wanted to partake in the sufferings of Christ, and he wasn't going to be crucified, at least yet, but he was going to suffer in every city, and so he wanted to suffer like Jesus Christ had suffered for him. Verse 24, none of these things move me. We heard a martyr. We heard about a martyr, and we heard from that martyr today by what's recorded that he said. It didn't move him, did it? to have a joint removed from a thing, a digit every day. And we don't know how many days he lasted. I had some youth coming to me at break time, having counted up all the joints of hands, fingers, toes, feet, and came up with about 72. So if he lived 72 days, he got another joint cut off because none of these things moved him. The question that we all have to answer, what moves you? What moves you to be less than the Christian you should be? What moves you? Nothing moved Paul. He didn't care that the Holy Spirit showed him persecution in every city and that there was persecution worse that was coming. None of these things moved him. We need to look at that and ask, are we Christians like Paul? The problem is, our issue is not suffering persecution. We hear about the martyrs. It's hard for us to relate, as Nathan said to us this morning, because we can't connect with such pain and suffering. But as I spoke to a young man at break time, we have a different temptation. The temptation is not persecution. The temptation is pleasure and prosperity. Pleasure and prosperity have never made good Christians. What moves you? What gets you excited? What moves you away from the Lord Jesus Christ and being the best for him? Nothing was going to move Paul on the negative side in the way of torture or persecution or death. And we have the positive side. Life is too good. I can go to church on Sunday and live in pleasure and prosperity the rest of the week. But that isn't a Christian. That's a lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God because you're only giving God 30% four four hours a week. And the other 164 hours, you're giving yourself pleasure. We've got to ask ourselves, how do I fit in verse 24? None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself. Can you say that? Your professional life, your marital life, 
Your domestic life. Can you say my life does not matter as much to me as being a great Christian for the cause of Jesus Christ? So that I might finish my course with joy. You know what these verses are tied in elsewhere in the New Testament where Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind, I press toward the mark. He knew he was in a race. We don't have a race to be the apostle of the Gentiles. We have a race to be a committed Christian with first love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means other things can't move us. That means we don't count those other parts of our lives dear to us. It means that we finish our course with zeal. We forget the laps behind us. And whatever lap is in front of us, we run it for the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other ounce of energy you put forth is going to be mocked and disappear. It's what's done for Christ Jesus is what lasts. And that's what you know about Paul. That's why you respect Paul so much. Because he did so much for the cause of Jesus Christ. I've received a ministry of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel, the grace of God. And so none of these things move me, as he told those elders. What an encouragement. What a a locker room appearance by the great apostle Paul for those elders that were going to have their own war to fight there in the city of Ephesus. Verse 25, I know that you're never going to see me again. Men, you're never going to see me again. I will not be coming back this way. Wherefore, because you're never going to see me again, let me give you some last words. I am pure from the blood of all men. I have taught this church everything they need to know, and I have taught you elders everything you need to know. I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. I've told you everything you need. That is just weighty. That is the mighty Apostle Paul you will never see my face again. And they're going to weep over it in just a moment. You're never going to see my face again. But before I disappear, I want to tell you I'm free from all of your blood. I have given this church every advantage for you to be a great church of Jesus Christ. So we come to verse 28 and I read four verses. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves. And to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. What an exhortation and what a horrible warning. Grievous wolves are going to sneak in to this church in verse 28. This church that God has purchased with his own blood. You have a flock to take care of in verse 29. This is so similar to what Paul would write Timothy On a one-on-one basis, Paul to Timothy. Here it's Paul to all the elders of the church of Ephesus. The Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Look at verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves. Paul wrote Timothy and said, 
Take heed, therefore, unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. A minister's got to maintain himself and his doctrine and uphold both of them because wolves are going to creep in and people are going to arise within a congregation, even within the ministry, to speak perverse things and lead men away for a following of themselves. Lord, have mercy upon us and every true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what a minister talks about when he's with his men, his ministers, for the last time. The warning about the trouble that's going to come and the diligence that it takes. Watch. Remember. I told you. I taught you. I didn't hold a thing back. Be faithful to those things. Verse 31, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now we saw a two-year segment, and then we saw that he was retained in Ephesus for a while longer than he had planned. And here he tells us, he rounds it off at three years that he sought to save and help this church. It's so We're going to get an epistle to this church from Paul. It's a great epistle. He doesn't describe great problems in the church, but when we read Revelation chapter 2, they've lost their first love. And he commended them for having tried some that said they were apostles and were not. And so they were trying to do some of his duty. But while you're reading that and thinking of, okay, the church saw some that were pretending to be apostles and tried them and found that they weren't, but I want you to also notice that there were men trying to pretend that they were apostles in the church at Ephesus, just like Paul had warned. These are, these are wonderful words. Wonderful words of what protects and preserves a church. So we come to verse 32 through 35. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that should be in the red writing because those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Apostle Paul is pulling up here. He said, I taught you everything and I showed you everything. I was an example of working hard to provide for myself and to provide for those that were with me and to provide charity for those that were in need. He's covered his whole ministry with these Ephesian elders. And these are wonderful words. And I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. What preserves a church? It is holding to scripture. It's the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among them which are sanctified. The Bible can't give us eternal heaven. But the Bible tells us about heaven, and the Bible tells us how we get to heaven, and the Bible tells us what we need to do for the assurance of heaven. And in that sense, it gives us an inheritance. It tells us how to lay hold of eternal life, that we might have that eternal inheritance, and it comes from the Bible. And we want to emphasize the Bible. We could ignore Acts. 
because you might think that it's boring. We could ignore Acts because it involves maps and cities and names that don't really matter because all that matters to you is the name of Jesus Christ. I think I hear one of the factions from Corinth who doesn't want to settle for Peter, Paul, or Apollos, but we follow Jesus. Well, if you follow Jesus, this is how Jesus was presented to the whole world. This is how it happened. And it's the word of his grace that builds us up. Let's never back down from being a Bible-based, Bible-preaching, Bible-emphasizing, Bible-memorizing, Bible-quizzing, Bible-Bible-Bible, everything based in the Bible. And the most important part of it is learning the doctrine and practicing what the Bible says to do. So if this will deliver us from every ism if we'll learn the Bible and stick to it. Verse 36 down to verse 38. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. Just think, just imagine, just see this picture there at Miletus on the shore, kneeling down and prayed with these elders, and they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. These are men kissing men appropriately with kisses of charity and holy kisses because they love one another, because our bond in Christ is the greatest bond you'll ever have in this world. Blood is thicker than blood. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more, and that they accompanied him unto the ship. Can you see them walking right up to the gangplank? And there Paul goes on, and the last goodbyes and waves are shown. But they loved the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul loved them. And his great concern was not for their comfort, not for their ease, but for the preservation of the church of Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus has long disappeared from this world. May God have mercy upon us and preserve our church. The first okay, we're at my Miletus. And so we need the next map. And so there's the next map. Paul and the elders were up here in the very top left-hand corner at Miletus. And now we can read in Acts chapter 21 how they get to Tyre across the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Acts 21 verse 1, And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them, they didn't want to let go, and had launched, they're in a ship, we came with a straight course unto Coos, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto Patera. And finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unlade her burden. Were you able to follow that? As I read through those three verses, from Miletus to Kos to Rhodes to Patera, it looks like Cyprus is on the right here. Oh, it's their left. Yes. It's their left. Come on. This is Luke explaining. He's standing on deck and he sees Cyprus on the left and they pass right by it to come on in to Tyre because that's where this cargo ship was going to unload. So they came to Tyre. Verse 4, And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when we had, accompl- when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way. 
And they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave, one of another, we took ship and they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. Look at, these, look at the affection for the Apostle Paul. This was not his ordinary place of preaching. His preaching was up in Phrygia and Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia. His home church was 250 miles north of this in Antioch of Syria. But these people knew about Paul, and look at the affection they had. Their whole families came out to the seashore of the Mediterranean Sea to say goodbye to the Apostle. Now a, a prophet said through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Have you ever read in the Old Testament where God told particular prophets to do this or that, and when they didn't do it, very bad things happened? Very bad things didn't happen to Paul that God didn't have planned for him. This was a conditional statement that if you go up to Jerusalem, you're going to get in trouble. Don't go up to Jerusalem if you don't want to get in trouble. That's all that's intended by this. Or we have Paul, by the Spirit, disobeying the Spirit. And we don't have Paul, by the Spirit, disobeying the Spirit. Paul's always operating by the Spirit. These people just said, by the Spirit, he's going to get in trouble in Jerusalem. And so they wanted to tell him, you're going to get in trouble in Jerusalem. You shouldn't go up to Jerusalem. You're going to get in trouble. But he had the same attitude he had right back here in Acts chapter 20. None of these things move me. I don't care what happens to me. You're going to find that out as we read ahead because you need to read all of the scriptures to appreciate individual verses like this so that you get the right sense for these verses. There's no sin against the Holy Ghost here. It's a conditional statement by the Spirit in these men. Paul's going to get in trouble in Jerusalem. Don't go up to Jerusalem. I don't care about getting in trouble up there. I don't care if I get killed up there. And that's what he's going to say in just a few verses. So we're cheating by looking ahead. But let's move, let's move on. Let's come to verse 8 and read through verse 16 about a week spent in Caesarea. Acts chapter 21 and verse 8. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company, there's Luke continuing to use the plural first person, we, that were of Paul's company, departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven deacons, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was coming to us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. This is exactly what happened back there in verse 4. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. 
And after those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Nason of Cyprus, an old disciple, with whom we should lodge. So there was an old man there named Nason from the island of Cyprus that had lodging places in Jerusalem. And so he was going to get to show hospitality and entertainment to the Apostle Paul. And he would hear about that someday. And we shall hear him hear about it, the Lord willing, when we're standing there and Jesus puts the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. So here we are in Acts chapter 21 and we're at Caesarea. And a man is, is identified there in verse 8 as Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven. And one of the seven means he was Philip, that deacon, that we read about in Acts chapter 6 in the first six verses, who became an evangelist when in Acts chapter 8, he went to Samaria and preached and converted most of the whole city, and then he converted and baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. He also baptized most of the city of Samaria, but they didn't get the Holy Ghost because he was only an evangelist and not an apostle. And so they had to send for Peter and John. Do you remember all this? From Acts chapter 8, they had to send for Peter and John that laid hands on those baptized converts of Philip the Evangelist, and they received the Holy Ghost. So the Lord Jesus, by His Spirit, is tying different events together. Do deacons preach? Well, sure they can, but a deacon that's an evangelist really preaches. Was Philip a deacon or an evangelist? Yes. What was, he, what was the greater office? An evangelist. When did he evangelize? Acts 8. So you've got six, he's ordained a deacon. Eight, he's evangelizing the city of Samaria. 21, we're told a little bit more about him. And he had four daughters that were virgins that prophesied. Girls prophesying, of course. These are the apostolic days. And the Holy Ghost reminds us by these little inserts that we are still, after the day of Pentecost, in the time of Reformation, when maidens, women, Men prophesied, including these girls. It was part, it was normal, it was ordinary, it was acceptable for that time. They couldn't be bishops, they couldn't be deacons, but they could prophesy during that 40-year time period when both covenants ran side by side. We had the New Testament covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ running, and we had the Old Testament covenant of Moses running side by side for 40 years from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. when the Old Testament covenant was obliterated by the destruction of Jerusalem. And so they try to tell Paul not to go up, and he says, what do you mean trying to break my heart with all this crying and you're feeling sorry for me? I'm ready to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to go to Jerusalem. I've been moved to go to Jerusalem. I'm, I'm eager to get to Jerusalem. And for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't care what happens to me. Praise his glorious name. That is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the zeal in the man Paul. We come to verse 17. I'm going to read through verse 25. And we're getting toward the end of this third trip. Acts 21, verse 17. And when we were come to Jerusalem... The brethren received us gladly. Luke tells us that. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. 
And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. And they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things, whereof they were informed concerning thee, are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly, and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication." So Paul comes in at Tyre, he spends a week there, he spends a day in Ptolemais, he spends many days in Caesarea, we meet Philip the Evangelist, they go up in altitude to Jerusalem, they meet the apostles and elders, they're received warmly, Paul tells in detail what God had done among the Gentiles with him, and then James and the apostles that were there and the elders said, we could use a favor. Look at the thousands of Jews that believe and are still in this city. They have heard the rumor that you are telling Jews elsewhere that they don't need to keep the customs and that you're against the law. Would you mind taking one of Moses' ceremonial laws and doing it with four men that we have under a vow? Would you mind going into the temple with a sacrifice and a shaved head so that they can see that you still practice the law and you don't hate all aspects of the law. It's just fantastic, practical wisdom. To the Jew, I became as a Jew. To those under the law, as under the law. To those without law, as without law. When I could eat a pepperoni pizza, I did. When it wasn't good to eat a pepperoni pizza, I didn't. When I ought to shave my head, and go into the temple in Jerusalem like there's a vow on me, I did it. This is just incredible wisdom for us to learn and practice ourselves. And you can see the reasoning. They don't want to cause a riot, even with the church, with the Apostle Paul being in town. Brother, they're all going to come together when they hear that you're in town. Would you mind just making this a peaceful event with the brethren by taking a vow and going into the temple and offering a sacrifice with four others. And I'm telling you, I've just tried to explain it. Let me go over it again. From 30 AD to 70 AD, two covenants are running simultaneously side by side. And it was all a matter of discretion if Paul would circumcise Timothy and not circumcise Titus as to what the audience was, what the consequences were, and whether it would aid the gospel or not. And the Lord's going to take care of the Old Covenant thoroughly. There's not going to be an altar. There's not going to be a veil. There's not going to be a holy of holies. There's not going to be a priesthood. There's not going to be anything left after 70 AD. Right. Verse 26, last section. 
four verses, five verses. Then Paul took the men. Paul agreed to do this. A Jewish ceremony in the temple. And the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. And when the seven days were almost ended, for the offering to be offered and their vow to be ended, the Jews which were of Asia, see they've come to the feast, from the area around Ephesus, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. They got their mitts on our brother Paul, crying out in verse 28, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people, and the law, and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple, and hath polluted this holy place. They made an assumption that was incorrect, because Paul would not have done that. And it's in parentheses in verse 29, this is their false assumption, for they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus, an Ephesian, a Gentile, whom they supposed, they supposed, they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. This is an enormous temple in Jerusalem. They shut the doors, and they have Paul in the street, and they're going about to kill him, and the Roman chief captain comes down and rescues him, and that's where we're going to leave Paul, because obviously his third trip has ended. He will have a fourth trip that will set sail from Caesarea and end up in Rome, but that's for another time. So Paul does what was asked of him by the apostles, but they had been, he had been seen with Trophimus, a Gentile, in the city, and the Jews made a false assumption that Paul would defile the temple, which he had not done, and so they attack him, and this is all going to turn for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul is going to have a couple years in decent conditions in Caesarea, by which he's able to write epistles. He's going to have some years in a rented house in the city of Rome, Italy, that he's going to be able to write some epistles. He's going to convert members of Caesar's household. There is traffic going in and out of Rome every day because it's the metropolis of the world at this time, and Paul's there ready to use it, and the Lord gets him there with an all-expense-paid trip with the full protection of the Roman Empire in a ship of theirs, which is trip number four. And so you can look at that map. He didn't make it to his home church this time. They had to rely on letters from here on out or visitors as friends would go back and forth because he's going to end up here in Jerusalem and we're not going to cover the next five chapters or so that cover his, the events in Rome and then in Caesarea as a prisoner. We're going to wait until next Sunday to look at that final trip that will cover Acts chapters 27 and 28 when he goes to Rome, Italy. This is how you believe on Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for the red line and the men that he ordained and the men they ordained, do you remember how Paul described ordination and the succession of ministers? Ministerial succession? He never described church succession. He described beautiful feet succession. He told Timothy, the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, my public ministry, the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same things, my public ministry, 
commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Four generations of preachers. Paul, Timothy, John Doe, Jim Bob. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to any minister of the gospel with names like either of those. But that's how the gospel prevailed. You know, we read in here that the word of God increased mightily and prevailed. Mm -hmm. It tells us in the book of Acts. Do you read, when you see that word prevailed, can you think of a statement by Jesus Christ, a prophecy that he made? Did he say that upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? Right. When you read about Ephesus and you read about the, the, this whole city coming together screaming about greatest Diana of the Ephesians, the apostle Paul went into hell and who prevailed? The gates of hell didn't prevail against Paul. Paul prevailed against the gates of hell so that they had to get into the theater and have a citywide meeting. This man is about to ruin our religion. This man's about to ruin our craft. He's about to take our wealth because the gospel prevailed. This was the time of the judgment of this world. And these men were sent out to reprove the world. They reproved the world that idols made with hands were no gods. And that just crushed idolatry. There were stores closing left and right. No more idol stores. Craftsmen were shutting down. Factories were laying off. All because of the Apostle Paul and the ministry given to him by the Holy Ghost and the serious zeal that he put into it and ordaining other men that ordained other men. And today, we sit here, we're not at St. Mary's. And we aren't anywhere else. We're right here wanting a New Testament church and to be Bible Christians and followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, waiting for him to come to us. Remember, it's the word of God that can build us up and give us an inheritance with the saints that are sanctified. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.